This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. BMO Field uh, was built at an original cost of $62.9 million. Think about that. 2007. That's what it cost to build. $62.9 million between the three levels of government. Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, of course, pitched in as well. They've done renos since then, quite obviously. Um, there was a big reno in 2010. I remember the one in 2016 because there were a bunch of big events in a row. I think the Grey Cup, which is scheduled like a couple of years in advance, right? The, the BMO was hosting the Grey Cup. The MLS Cup final was there two years in a row in 2016 and 2017. They lost in 2016 on penalties to Seattle and they beat them in 2017. And then they held the Centennial Classic, which was a Leafs Red Wings outdoor game, um, a regular season game on January 1st, if I'm not mistaken. So they did a lot of renovations for that. Toronto's at a bit of a pinch here. And the concept is the city is discussing, is requesting to enter into a contract with one company, Gensler Architecture and Design, to do um, to basically renovate the stadium at BMO Field for for these World Cup games. Now, I'm going to tell you again that I love the concept of the World Cup being here. That's a dream. Of course it is. There's a joint bid with the United States and Mexico. But Toronto, how do I put it? There's 16 stadiums that will host this mega tournament when they expand it out to 48 teams. And um, and I'm not, I, I can't be all in. As much as I love the sport, as much as I consume the sport. I watched a lot of Canada-Cuba last night. Um, I'll go to my kids' practice this evening. I went to Toronto FC in person on Saturday. I'm a season ticket holder. It is really tough to wrestle with the idea of expanding the seats by 16000 for this stadium, spending hundreds of millions of dollars to do it, of taxpayer money. They don't seem to have gotten... Um, proper advice or guidance. Hello, I'm right here. You can hire me to figure out how to generate streams of revenue. Vancouver has put a hotel tax in for hotels, Airbnb, Verbo, whatever, to 2.5%. The cost of those of what or the revenue generated there goes to the cost of minor tweaks to BC Place. But BC Place already holds 54,000 and FIFA needs you to be able to hold at least 45,000. This just makes no sense. It makes no sense. All throughout the United States, these games are going to be held in NFL stadiums. In Kansas City, where the Chiefs play. In Dallas, where the Cowboys play. New York, New Jersey, where the Giants and Jets both play. 80,000 seats. All the suites are ready. All the parking. All the this. All the that. SoFi Stadium, where I went out and did the Super Bowl a couple years ago. Amazing, amazing venue. It holds 72,000 and comfortably. We're just trying to like wedge our way into this thing and it's going to cost money. And then no event is needed for 45,000 people. After that, no event TFC doesn't need that much. The Argos certainly don't need that much. Maybe a gray cup could draw 45,000, but only in the best of circumstances. This is a waste of an infrastructure project. I'd love to have world cup games here, but I don't see a cost-benefit analysis that makes me, if I'm saying no, imagine a less passionate soccer fan. A la- imagine somebody that knows the economics of what's involved a little bit less. I, I just, I'd have a tough time. Greg Brady, Toronto City Council. I know, scary thought. 
like voting this through and spending your money on this project for five World Cup matches. Wowza. Anyway, more on this as the uh, morning continues. 613. Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. See, I can be a man of principle sometimes. I've been willing to give up my World Cup soccer. <laughs> I know. Because it's nuts. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I'm surprised. What do you make of the case I lay out there? It doesn't make any sense no. in the long term. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Actually, I didn't know you had season tickets to Toronto. I share them with my neighbor and another friend. Oh, that's so smart. I know more and more people are doing yeah. that. Yeah. Well, one of the big things is we, we're like, we don't know if we're going to keep it for next year. But, but this Lionel Messi person is going to play for Miami FC. And I, we figure we could sell that match and pay yeah, for like five other matches to somebody really, that really wants to see Messi. There's that much of a discrepancy like yeah, for a big player. Wow. He's, yeah, it'll be a massive, massive thing. But yeah, I, I look at this, Sheba, and as much as I would love it, it would be it's a really tough business case to make when our city's kind of broke. As in not just like... It's one thing for you and I to be everybody to play the starving university student or college student or nobody has any money in their early 20s. But I don't owe anybody a billion dollars. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. owe we owe a billion dollars. We're a billion dollars in the hole. But it shows you where our priorities are. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing worth spending money on outdoor pools. And I was struck. You put this in our uh, our discussion points for this morning. But I was struck by how late these pools are open. Lay out some of, of where these pools are and the, the time where they actually kick you out of the pool is remarkable that you can stay that late. Yes, it is. So now, I mean, we know there's a heat wave going on. Some people are loving it. Some people are hating it. And uh, you and I, as people remind us, are very privileged to have our own pools in our backyard, but not everybody has this. Uh, so there are several public pools around the city that are going to be open until I believe it's 11.45 p.m. So just before midnight. That's how late they're going to be open. Uh, and that includes Alex Duffin Memorial, Giovanni Cabado, McGregor Park Community Center, Monarch Park, Parkway Forest, Smithfield Park, and Sunnyside Gus Rider. All of these are open late, especially they're known as cool spaces. They're for heat relief. Uh, and there are also other places, right? Community centers, pools, I'm uh, sorry, community centers and libraries as well. But the pools are a big one. You can bring your yeah. family. You can cool off there. I mean, we're seeing crazy temperatures. And uh, personally for me, I, I mean, I love the heat. I'm I'm, I'm absolutely. Do you like it, it as much as you did 20? I loved it when I was in my 20s and teens. I it, The hotter, the better. And I loved just being active in the heat because it felt like you were you were doing better for your body, but man, it wears Well, you're sweating me down it out. Now. You're sweating it out. I mean, it's like a hot yoga class for a lot of people, right? <laughs> for me, it is. That's what it feels like. I was out all day yesterday. I, I did a workout in the middle of the sun in the middle, in the afternoon. Uh, but I just, I love it. I love that feeling. But we, are we, I forget where your water consumption is. Have you and I had this conversation? I know I've had it with my wife where she, she's now carrying around. Somebody got her one of these big, huge things that has yes. like time on it. Yeah, oh, it's like time 9 a.m., 12 right? yes. p.m., and you're supposed to have drank a certain amount of water by Throughout those hours? Yes. So sometimes I see her, and it's 5 o'clock, and she's still drinking her 1 o'clock water based on the bottle. I know, and then, then you feel hilarious. really guilty. Then you feel, <laughs> yeah, you do. It's like it's like some some you feel some self, uh, self-loathing there because you're like... <laughs> but I think it's a three-liter bottle. Uh, I think it's that Some big. of them are bigger than that. Yeah, I think it's three, uh, possibly four. Wow. Yeah, and uh, they have the time, but it helps you get your, it helps you stay hydrated throughout the day. You have to. Yeah, everybody's saying drink your, drink water even if you're not thirsty right now, and it's, uh, it's the right idea. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Um, you have to be 18 to get a uh, tattoo or a piercing in Ontario still. I know it feels like we're like sliding the, the ruler towards just letting every, anybody do everything at all the time. But it's still true. You can make an exception 
at 16 if you have signed parental consent. I don't remember. I know there was a battle in my household, not with me, um, because I never had an earring and I never wanted to get a tattoo and I still don't have one. Um, But I know that there were ear piercing battles with my two younger sisters and my ultra conservative, whatever. um, She's very liberal uh, mom. But I, Chiba, would you have known that it's still 18 to get a tattoo? No, I had no idea. Because kids but are then, getting them younger yes. than that. I mean, that, you can walk somehow. into, there are many tattoo parlors. I'm sure you can walk into and they, they won't even check your ID. Well, they're breaking the law and we need to, we need to check them out. <laughs> Crack down on them. Right. It's like those Northern Ontario, uh, uh, the LCBO in Perry Sound that was selling me uh, root beer schnapps at age 16 and a half back in well, this 1987 com- that, or 89 that was bad. This conversation comes from a uh, UK woman who has more than 800 tattoos. Her entire face is covered in tattoos other than her lips. And she is having trouble finding employment. No kidding. (laughs) Um, I I don't want to judge people's appearances, but... um, yeah, she her quote, I can't get a job. She told the Daily Star, this is Melissa Sloan. She's 46. I applied for a job cleaning toilets where I live and they won't have me because of my tattoos. People have said I never have had a job in my life, but I have had one once and it didn't last long. She's 46. <laughs> <laughs> That's That was cool that one time I worked for a few months. I don't know what to say. She said she didn't even get a tattoo until she was 20 and she became hooked, but... Chiba, would you, would you, could this be a nanny for you? Could this be um, a pool girl and as opposed to the pool boy that you may have uh, wandering around the compound? Tattoos very intimidating. I yeah. just, I find them intimidating. I, I, I love you know, a good tattoo, especially with a good story behind it. Yes, I can absolutely appreciate that. But when it's on your face, for the world to see, that's the first impression you want to give people. I don't know. I, I just, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not either and i oh my goodness i can't stand the concept that we discriminate based on looks and she looks scary so she gets about three tattoos a week uh, even though she's got 800 already all over her body she gets about three weeks she's very proud of that uh and she looks she looks scary to me she's been banned from her local pub oh god and from her children's school no that's wrong. now that's wrong i don't know about the pub the pub is a private business Look, it, but she's not hurting anybody. I know. I, I think there's some legal grounds there, but I don't have to hire you if I think you're going to intimidate customers. If I th- if I'm a bank, I'm sorry. I don't have to tell you why that's not why I'm hiring you, but I sure don't have to give you a job as a teller at, at BMO or, or Royal Bank, do I? I can't. OK, so what are you doing if one of your boys comes to you and <laughs> says he wants a tattoo? One has asked. Uh, oh, the younger one, isn't it? Yes, but <laughs> I don't see that happening for the near future. Look, I've told him, I said, you got to, even when he was letting his hair get a little unkempt going into the second semester, I'm like, you're meeting new teachers for the first time. I think the first week of high school is, I'm telling you this because yes. now you're going to experience this. I know. I'm like, it's a job interview. You Like, I think teachers right away, it's it's like Malcolm Gladwell thin slicing. Yeah, they sum you up. They judge you. You, are ju- you get judged the very first impression you make with somebody. I think we've all noticed this in our, um, in our, you know, pandemic world. When you meet somebody in person, sometimes I get a much better vibe than I do in person, connecting, connecting with people than I do over Zoom or over a phone call. Of course. So, nature. like, think about all the people 
even in our workplace or friends of friends or whomever, and you're like, can't wait to get together. And then you do, and you're like, oh, I like, the, uh, you know, it's not that you don't like the person prior to, but you're just able to connect. Well, that's, I think that's, that's why this whole work from home thing is going to work for as long as it has, because <laughs> people need human physical connection and interaction. And I, I think that you should let your son get a tattoo. I, yeah, but I don't want to, sh- I'll send him pictures of, uh, <laughs> of, of Ms. Ms. Sloan with the 800 tattoos who continues going back. She'd have a heck of a discrimination thing against the pub if she was banned from it just because of how she looked. If she got unruly or started throwing drinks around at one point, that's fine. Then I think you can ban people. But if they're like, customers don't like the look of you, well, where do we stop? Yes. Right? Um, <laughs> that's not great. But yeah, it, it's uh, sh- her quote. If I make it to 70, I'll still be getting them, she declared. Every bit of skin will be covered even if I'm turning blue. My face is already turning blue. I look like a Smurf. Okay. Her words, not mine. This is kind. This is some type of a condition to me. At this point, it's not a hobby. It's a tattoo addiction. No, I there is a, there is a, a mental health issue here. I'm going to go ahead and say that. So she's she says I've got three <laughs> layers of tattoos on my face, and I probably have the most tattoos in the world. Looking at her, yes, there's something else going on. There's something you don't like the way you look. You're trying to hide yourself. I don't know what it is, but it needs to be. Do you know any women Lord. that have a facial tattoo? No, none. Interesting, Gord. Men, women. Like a Post Malone type thing. Yeah, I'm trying to think. No, or I don't Mike think Tyson that. had got a little thing right around his eye. I always, yeah, no, I always say it's like you, you, you want to get tattoos, but just not on your face and hands and on your back. I just, I just find like, well, no one's gonna see your back well, um, on most occasions. Yeah, but, no, but then there's co- the whole you, you can cover those up, but you can't cover up your hands or your face. Most, I think a guy, a guy who was like an assistant manager at one of the shoppers drug marts that I, uh, I was frequenting or in my early uh, days moving here, especially when you had to go for a lot of baby stuff. I remember going like late night trips, and he had like like a lizard tattoo snaking up, no pun intended, from his neck. And I'm just like, he's made it to assistant manager here, like somebody hired him and. He must be really good. Well, I know with I a snake tattoo or well, a lizard, whatever it was. If, if he double crosses you, a gyla monster, if he whatever it was, double crosses you. It's like, well, he had a snake tattooed on his <laughs> his neck. I have a I have a friend whose brother is a physician in Toronto. He's got his own clinic, his own doctor's mm. office, and he's always wearing a collared shirt, long sleeves. But then I've seen him on the weekends. He's got a boat, and they're at the cottage. He is covered in tattoos. I think that's fine. Had you, to you're, but, you're on your own time. But when you walk, when a patient walks in, they would never know it. So yeah. it's all, it, it goes right above his, below his collar is where it starts mm. and covered. So it's interesting. There's five um, regular Monday to Friday hosts on this radio station. I'm, I won't ask you to rank them in least likely to get a facial tattoo. <laughs> I, I know what you're getting out of here. <laughs> But I'm telling you, I'm the last guy. I know Oakley would say, no, sorry, sir, it's me. I'm the last guy that would get a visible tattoo first, above the neck. The I first? don't know. <laughs> yes, you do. I do not. <laughs> yeah, you if you're gonna get, I really don't. If you're going to get a facial tattoo, get, us get, would. get one of Brad Pitt or something. Oh, my heavens. What do I get that little Prince logo that he was using for a while? <laughs> not, not writing the, uh, he wrote slave to the record company oh, right. on his face. I'm like, no, Prince, you're doing just fine. Okay, you're still charging 125 bucks a ticket. Don't get the station ID. Oh, on your, I was going to do that. No, I never do that. that. On the website. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We mentioned it earlier. Actually, we heard from a couple people. Um, I did via Twitter DM, and I think we got a text as well, people that had taken that GO train from London to Toronto. It actually ends up in Etobicoke. 
but it takes it takes about four hours and 50 minutes. The cost is actually pretty reasonable. It is cheaper than what you'd pay to fill up a gas tank um, to go from London to Toronto on your own. And that's the point. But where we struggle sometimes with this in, in, in the city proper and also going outside the city is for whatever you think of uh, America, they figured this out. Europe's figured it out ages ago, but somehow on Amtrak, I gave you the example of Baltimore to Philadelphia, um, which is not a bad drive at all. It's about an hour and 50 minutes for a drive, but they figured out how to give you like a $50 Amtrak ticket. Amtrak trains are great. I've taken them into uh, Penn Station before in New York from Syracuse, Rochester, where my sister lives now, taking them in. I went to see the U.S. Open. So then you're riding subway trains all over the place to go to the tennis and go out to Flushing Meadow. But they've taken an hour and 50 car ride and they've made the train trip 61 minutes. Like, that's what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to make this efficient and not make it longer than you'd actually be in the car. Because where's the incentive if neither of those things work? Uh, I want to bring on Jonathan English, um, who writes about travel and has a Ph.D. in urban planning as well. And he, by the way, he went to the awesome Columbia University as uh, what's her name in Legally Blonde says, like, that's hard. Um, Jonathan English joins us now on uh, Toronto Today. It's great to have you on the show. I really appreciate you making the time for us this early. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, we just see even today, Jonathan, um, some notes about uh, report cards about Toronto's reliable transit service and how how it's just falling down. Is there? I know there's not a quick solution. I know there's not an obvious solution because then I would make the case the geniuses that run our city would have done it by now. But what do you look at and you go, this is obvious to you, but it just doesn't seem to be resonating with the decision makers. Well, I think there are a few different things that uh, we have to focus on. And one of the ones is that exactly what you mentioned, and that is speed. People aren't going to necessarily be able to take transit and have it be faster than driving most of the time. Maybe at rush hour, that would be ideal when driving is pretty slow. But focusing on speed overall, um, so for example, if you take the bus to the train and then the train across the city and then um, switch to another bus, the bus part is going to be slow for sure. Yeah. But you have to then make up for that with a pretty fast train across the city, whether that's a go train or a subway or something like that to make people's trips faster. And then the other one is just about um, a, a, about consistency of service and coverage. So. You know, when you get to a bus stop, you really don't want to wait longer than 15 minutes at most, ideally 10 minutes, let's say, um, because when you're standing when it's minus 20, which is hard to imagine right now, but uh, nobody wants to stand at a bus stop for half an hour um, waiting for their connection or whatever. How much do you think our climate gets in the way of this? I mean, I do mention Baltimore and Philadelphia. Those are eastern seaboard cities. They have a little bit better weather than us, but they're not... They're not San Diego. They're not Dallas. How much does climate get in the way of what we want to do, especially with buses? It clearly does. But what about trains? Well, I will say we should we should note that when it comes to local transit, we actually in Toronto use transit more than almost anybody in North America. Mm -hmm. So in the city of Toronto, it's actually pretty impressive that more people are willing to ride the bus here, even though they have to stand outside in like minus 15 uh, than they are in American cities with much better weather. When you talk about the train between cities, though, like one of the huge advantages they have between Baltimore and Washington or Baltimore and Philly, um, that whole stretch from uh, Boston to Washington, is mm -hmm. that Amtrak owns its own tracks. Uh, so it, it owns the tracks that whole stretch. And so they're able to run, for example, electric trains, 
they're able to run trains a lot more often, and they're also able to run them faster. In Canada, intercity trains all have to share with freight trains, and the needs of the two are very different. You know, you don't want to you don't want to hurt freight travel and and have all those trucks dumped on the 401 by prioritizing passenger trains only. Um, but the flip side is when you prioritize freight trains, the passenger trains have to be slower and less frequent. So um, that's not a great situation either. The best situation would probably be to have separate tracks for each, which is what they have in that part of the U.S. Other parts of the U.S. aren't quite so good. Jonathan England's join, uh, English is joining us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Are there lessons we can learn um, fr- fr- from, like, again, th- that's, a, um, that's a parameter that obviously we can't uh, countenance very easily, but are there lessons, we always talk about the lessons we can learn from Europe or Japan and their bullet trains. Are there things we can learn from conventional train travel in the United States? Well, in some cases, uh, you know, having having the separate tracks is is one of them. Um, you were right about the fares as well. You know, sometimes the cost of of travel, not so much on the go trains, but but on via, can be pretty prohibitive, um, especially when you're going out west. But but even to like Ottawa and Montreal, um, in in Europe, they've really prioritized keeping the fares low to get people off the roads. Um, out of the congested airports and onto the train. Uh, and in fact, what it has, has, has made is, is you have the trains be much more full. And when the trains are more full, you end up getting more revenue anyway. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a virtuous cycle if you're able to provide that additional service. So yeah, lower fares and, and uh, where possible faster trains are are, um, and dedicated tracks are probably the best lessons. We had David Zipper on the show last week who lives in D.C. We were talking about all forms of transit, not just uh, buses and, and trains, but e-bikes, et cetera, et cetera. And he doesn't see it. He sees it like I do. We don't necessarily have a war on the car, but also he doesn't think America has a love affair with the car as he describes it. It's more of a forced marriage. I talk about living in, in Michigan as I did. Um, and no, I couldn't take transit into work from the suburbs. I could get around the city on something called the people mover from time to time. But but that's like at least we've got the infrastructure here already where we could, if not wean you off having a car downtown because of cost and parking and space and whatnot. We, we at least can sort of lay the groundwork for you to use it a lot less. Absolutely. So in a couple decades after the Second World War, Toronto was the only city in North America, you know, at the heart of highway building time and, and, uh, and when everybody was buying a car, Toronto was the only city in North America where more people at the end of that time were riding transit than, than at the beginning. And the reason for that is that Toronto added a lot of just frequent, consistent bus service in the suburbs. So by the 70s, uh, if you were in, you know, on Finch Avenue or, or someplace like that, um, you could catch a bus every 10 minutes uh, scheduled, you know, not always reliable, but, but at least it was scheduled that fast. Um, if you go to suburban New York today, like on Long Island, I lived in New York. If mm-hmm. you go on Long Island, uh, you know, there are lots of parts of the, of the island where the buses don't even run on Sundays, where they stop running at 7 p.m. And even at the busiest uh, times in the middle of the day, uh, they're coming every hour. So, it's not at all surprising that that nobody who has any other option chooses uh, to ride the bus on Long Island, and and you know other you know that's New York. Other parts of the U.S. are are even worse. 
Um, whereas in Toronto, you know, we see it in the statistics. Even today, you know, it's maybe taken a bit of a hit with COVID, but uh, even today, there are loads and loads and loads of people who take the TTC who either have a car literally sitting in the driveway or who who could afford a car if they wanted to. Yeah, you make a great point. Um, my sister um, was at Hofstra for a little while, so you'd know that that area well, yeah. like Long Island out near where the uh, where the Islanders actually played. And the Long Island Railroad was just that's what we took in to go to Penn Station to New York when when we'd visit. But I, I, I some, something about Toronto, like we're not intimidated, I feel like, Jonathan, to drive in Toronto or in the interior of the city. I think New York still has that even for native New Yorkers. It's the last thing they want to do is take a car into Manhattan or Brooklyn. It feels like that anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. It's it's um, you know it it doesn't help that it's an island with you know old and and very busy biz, very busy bridges, uh, but it's true. You know, even to, to, to in, even till today, a lot of people in Toronto, um, you know, drive into downtown. People who live downtown have a car. Uh, there aren't that many people who live in Manhattan. Um, or 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 the the central most parts of Brooklyn, who um, who have a car or or use it regularly, and it's just because it's it is that much more crowded. You know, when we build a high rise apartment, at least until recently, it always had a big garage underneath, which is not the case in in New York. So. Um, yeah, we do make it a little bit easier to drive here than than in a place like New York. Yeah. Hey, I really enjoyed the chat. I hope we uh, really smart stuff and I hope we get to uh, to do it again. I appreciate you getting up early for our show and our audience. No problem. Thanks very much. You bet. Jonathan English joining us. You can read more uh, on him uh, at transitfutures.blogspot.com. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Federal polling from Ipsos. Really interesting. And the timing, I think, is really interesting as well because it's obviously fresh for us, fresh content. But it's as big a lead as we've seen for the Conservative Party of Canada in a national poll in ages, certainly since since uh, in the last 12 months, since Pierre Pauly ever uh, 10 months or so since he became leader. Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos and joins us right now on Toronto Today. Daryl, I know you did a lot of TV yesterday. Thanks for making this time and uh, let, letting us catch up today on some of the takeaways from this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I want to start with the NDP. Um, those are really concerning numbers at 16 percent. We generally see them roll in the last three elections, the two with Jugmeet Singh, the one prior with Thomas Mulcair, where they had 44 seats. They're down to 25 now, down 18 to 16. Um, and we know people tend to vote strategically come Election Day. I'd be really worried about this number if I'm Jugmeet Singh. Yeah, he should be. And, and this is the effect, I would say, of being the minor partner in an unpopular uh, coalition government. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's fairly typical. We do see this. I mean, when, whenever there's these minority situations, the second party tends to get lost. Uh, you can't stand out as being independent and representing any form of opposition or any difference from the governing party. So basically what he's allowed is his brand to be subsumed by the liberal brand. And the liberal brand is not particularly popular at the moment. No, it's it's tough to find a way back uh, from it um, while still being in the conf- in the uh, supply and confidence agreement. When you, I mean, of course, we're, we're, we feel decades away from Jack Layton's 103 seats, Daryl. But again, even mentioning the Thomas Mulcair election, Trudeau's first win in 2015, not so bad. 44 seats. You have some element of influence. You look like like a like a big, serious party. The idea that the NDP could fall even further out of fashion. If this is a real dogfight, people are just going to go to the polls and vote strategically next time there's an election. And that leaves them out. 
Well, yeah, the NDP's got a choice, and they've had two leaders that have taken two different choices of, of significance. One was Ed Broadbent, who we just wanted to be mm-hmm. the conscious of Parliament and was happy to lose the election. Uh, and then the other one was Jack Layton, who said, look, we're going to replace the Liberals, and we're going after them. And we're going to be a real opposition. And, you know, he he realized that ambition in 2011 when he became the, the official opposition uh, uh, against the government, against, uh, against the Harper government. Jagmeet Singh seems to be kind of stuck in between and doesn't really know who he wants to be, and uh, at least in the way he's been presenting himself. So in being in this agreement takes away the ability for the NDP to actually replace the Liberals, because what they've done is they've attached themselves so closely to it that they're now lost. So it'll be really a, a very big challenge for Mr. Singh to get them reestablished as something like Jack Layton was trying to create, which was the replacement for progressive voters in this country. And I think when you're a tra- you make a great point when you're a traditional third place party, you, you do have that choice. You you kind of have to pick one direction or the other. Like some people have aligned that where the NDP are federally with, say, where the Ontario liberals are. And I don't see that the Ontario liberals had more people vote for them than the NDP did. But as I were documenting, it wasn't strategic. They did it with an unpopular leader at a time where they didn't seem to know who they were. They couldn't differentiate. You put somebody that can handle, you know, handle the shrapnel in there for the next election against Doug Ford. Um, you put a Nate Erskine Smith in there. You pick somebody else. You're going to end up not just with more popular vote, but you're going to take seats away, not just from the conservatives, but from the NDP. I'm not sure the federal NDP has that option. No, they don't. But they did. That's the interesting yeah. thing. They they did, and it was Jack Layton's strategy where he said, "Look, I'm committed to becoming the progressive option in this country." So that means eliminating the Liberal Party. Jack Layton was as committed to uh, eliminating the Liberal Party as Stephen Harper was. But Jagmeet Singh's basically, you know, rolled over for, since the time he's become the leader of the party and aligned himself with the Liberals, which makes it very, very difficult for them to go out now for example, and criticize the government for what it's done, because basically they've enabled it. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult position they find themselves in. And, you know, when we go back to you know, looking at Ed Broadbent and saying, you know, what a great Canadian he was and a fine you know, person and conscious of Parliament and all the rest of it. Yeah, he was all that, but he lost mm-hmm. every time he won. He, he ran. He came third every time he ran. So if you're content with being in that position, that's okay. But if you really do believe in that Jack Layton mission of eliminating the Liberal Party and becoming the progressive option for progressive voters in the country, then you have to be stronger. And Jagmeet Singh just isn't. Daryl Bricker is our guest from Ipsos on Toronto today. We're talking about a poll released yesterday by Ipsos that has the Conservative Party of Canada polling nationally at 37%, the Liberals down to 32%. I mentioned that's huge progress for Pierre Polyevra, but he still needs seats. And when I look at Ontario, Daryl, I'm sure you've done exactly what I've done. I look at the last election, 78 liberal seats in Ontario, 37 conservative seats, almost mirror images of the 19 election with Andrew Scheer, the 15 election with Stephen Harper still trying to hang on. I, I don't see holes in the liberal wall in the GTA or up and down the 401. Do you see where the conservatives could swipe 18, 20 seats away? Cause that's really what they need in Ontario. They're very close. Yeah. They're very close. And so if you look at the regional numbers in the poll, uh, the Liberals and the Conservatives are tied in the province of Ontario, which probably means that the the Conservatives are very competitive in in the 905. And the big swath of seats that swings one way or the other 
and has swung uh, to Justin Trudeau in 2019, 2020, 21, but swung to Stephen Harper and actually to Doug Ford uh, when they won. Um, uh, that That's where they're competitive now. So if the Conservatives can move themselves up another two or three points in Ontario, uh, they're now probably going to win what the Liberals won in the, in the previous election. Is that enough to form a majority government? Well, as you can see from the, you know, uh, the, the last two elections, yeah. you know, it's formed minority governments. Is there a possibility for a conservative minority government? Difficult to see the pathway to that. To let people know, um, the liberal percentage in Ontario was 39.3 last election in fall of 21. Conservatives were at 34.9. So it's close to a four and a half point percentage. You're saying that's that's been that's been chopped off by the popularity um, of Pierre Polyevre that's more, in, um, you know, more coin flip right now. Yeah, I don't know that it's so much the popularity of, of Pierre Polyev because his negatives are actually quite high when you go and take a look at what people think. It's just that we're in a change type of an environment. This government, uh, the Liberal government today, um, hasn't really given a, a, the public strong reasons to support them. So basically what the Conservatives are benefiting from is the desire for change and them being the most viable option rather than people saying, you know, I'm really committed to Pierre Polyev or I'm really committed to the policy agenda of the Conservatives. They just, they're, they're just next up if you're dissatisfied with the current situation. And that's where Canadians are these days. And that's what's being reflected in this new five-point lead, which, by the way, is the first time we've seen the Conservatives with that kind of lead since the spring of 2019. Yeah, I, yeah, about six months before uh, the election um, with Andrew Scheer, obviously, as leader, there was much made about that lead. Where where do you see these pockets in, in southern Ontario? I don't, I don't doubt some ridings are going to flip. And it, it certainly happened the other way around. Adam Vancouver and famously beating Lisa Raitt here was like, oh, like you, you didn't expect that unless you were deep into the politics of that riding. But are they along the 401 Kitchener towards London? Are they further east? Where do you see them uh, being able to gain the conservatives? Well, I think it's, it's, you know, it's Kitchener all the way through to Durham. And taking a look at those seats that, uh, that, that the Liberals went, won in the last election, that, Doug, that voted for Doug Ford mm-hmm. um, in the last two elections and then voted for Stephen Harper back in 2011. Those are the seats that are in play. And the thing about the 905, or that big, the, the biggest definition of 905, is it tends to move in, in a block. It doesn't move like ones and twos and, you know, spots here and there. It tends to move as a block. Uh, uh, actually, Aaron O'Toole was probably three or four points off of making that happen. He have the Liberal lead in Ontario from what Andrew Scheer had. Um, so he cut mm-hmm. it in half. And if Pierre Polyev is able to take it to that next half and maybe add a couple more points, just specifically in the 905, it's a different election result. Is it enough to form a majority? That's the question, because there's probably no governing minority um, situation for the conservatives. Like, like I'll give you an example. I live in Ajax, right? So Mark Holland's our MP. Next door in Whitby, Ryan Turnbull is the MP. Those would be gentlemen that would have to lose their seats, really. And the conservatives would have to run a great candidate and a good campaign to, f- to flip those kind of veteran veteran politicians. Not really. I mean, Mark Holland's lost his seat before. Yeah, he has. Yeah. So, so it, it's, it's, it, the problem with MPs in those places is that um, they don't have a, a strong local profile, and the national camp campaign has a disproportionate impact on what happens in those places. Mm-hmm. So if the national campaign is doing well, which means that they have to be doing well in Ontario, yeah. then all of those ridings, you know, with the exceptions of somebody who has you know, a really, really strong personal following, those, they, they flip one way or the other, and we and we saw them 
in those campaigns that I mentioned, you know, Trudeau in 2015 and in 2019 and 21, yeah. he flipped it in 15 and then held on in those, in those other two elections. But Doug Ford flipped all of those seats uh, that Kathleen Wynne won uh, in the 905. No, he sure did. So it's not personally attached to the individuals, except maybe if somebody, as I said before, has a really strong personal local profile and following. It's a fascinating result, uh, and we'll obviously keep uh, eyes posted to see where numbers go in the fall. Daryl, thanks for the insight this morning. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Are you in or out? Just when I thought I was out. So are we in or out? You're out. You are over and out. No, 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 no. We insulted him a little bit. I'm okay with it, but now you're making me feel weird about it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Let's do this, and it's about uh, the eating contest. This is a really easy one for me. Um, Yesterday was the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest, and I'm just horrified and grossed out by it. I've had to MC wing eating contests, eat as many as you can in four minutes, and I'm like, I can barely grip the steering wheel on the way home. I'm out on eating <laughs> contests. Sheba, could you watch this? Uh, I would love to watch it. I might uh, gag in between watching them eat these Once hot dogs. Once they stop dipping so the hot dogs minutes. in water, yes. they have to make them wet and So in silky under 10 and- minutes, under 10 minutes, you have to finish as many hot dogs as possible. And this woman that won, she had, she consumed 39.5 hot dogs in under 10 minutes. I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> I don't think I could eat five in ten minutes, maybe three, but I'd want to vomit right after. Uh, mm. I am, I am out on participating in food eating contests. I can't even. I, I don't want to be anywhere near it. I couldn't listen to the guy. They were going to cancel it because of the weather. They had bad weather. They did the women's contest, and then all of a sudden, all these rain clouds came through. Excuse me, and uh, <laughs> and and I'm so mortified by it. And then they had the men and. The quote from Joey Chestnut was like, I didn't even think we'd get to eat today. I'm like, eat at all or eat in the contest? Gord, are you in or out on this? Oh, I'm in on both. I could I could watch you it and I could I could take part in it. I wouldn't be as good as I used to be, but maybe, maybe did you miss a, eight or nine. Did or you ten. miss a window to be a competitive eater? I didn't know it was a thing when so you know when you I could pack eat them back. Eight or nine hot dogs in ten minutes. Probably. Okay, I want to see this. I Probably. don't. <laughs> I'm not dipping them Can in water. Can you do it next Monday? I'm eating it like a regular hot dog, so I'd be, so the, I'd be out. The rating I, champion record holder had 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Wow. Joey Chestnut. And then the woman, she, her record is 48 in 10 minutes. By the way, I don't know if you know this for the Nathan's contest. Uh, if there's a tie, contestants go to a five hot dog eat off oh. to see who can eat that many the quickest. You've already polished off 70 something. We yeah. need you to do five more. They should do like a in, like a, a penalty shootout, like so, a like a bigger I one. Ju- <laughs> in or out on eating contests? 